there is so much money in the world. It's an abundant world. There's tons of prosperity, tons of money. There are tons of successful people that look just like us, just like you, whoever you are listening, in all fields and industries. Believe in yourself. By the way, no one can believe in you unless you believe in you. And believe in yourself every day. Like, like that's the game. Look in the mirror and say, I believe in you. Like, I have an active pra practice of self-belief. Because you'll need it, right? You need to put your boxing gloves on and you need to say, I believe in myself. Welcome back to another season of Third Culture Africans. I'm proud to say Africa's number one award-winning career and entrepreneurship podcast voted for by you at the African Podcast and Voice Awards. I am Zezu Ariaki Sal, your host. I'm obsessed with all things entrepreneurship, and our show is dedicated to igniting your entrepreneurial journey, sharing resources, and giving you the tools to pursue your dreams fearlessly. We celebrate artistry and stories from those brave enough to create something and succeed, inspiring, motivating, and full of wonder. Discover how those who succeed do it. Your support helps make this show bigger and better. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and join our community with weekly newsletters curated just for you. Let's connect on Instagram and Facebook at Third Culture Africans. Sit back, relax, and let's do this. Thank you for joining us on yet another week of Third Culture Africans. I think um, season three for me is turning out to be an incredible journey through self and discovering your purpose or in fact abandoning the idea of purpose to then stumble into it. My guest this week, Ikena Carrera, is also a friend but an incredible woman who has built a career around creating voices for those who lack it. A social entrepreneur has worked in TV, worked for the UN, a project manager, and an incredible soul all around who has creativity and servitude at the heart of her work. So thanks for joining us this week, Akenda. Thank you, Madam Zizi. It's an honor and a pleasure. I feel like um, each time I have my friends on 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 the podcast, I am at risk of like giggling too much or going into like old school jokes. But nonetheless, I think you know we've known each other for well over a decade now, and yeah. our. our um, I guess friendship began at a point where we were both building uh, businesses um, from the ground up, focused on artisans who don't necessarily get the same opportunity, but also building industry in a space that was so embryonic at the time. Um, fast forward to 2023 and our business ventures in those spaces I guess we're pioneering in, in some way. Mm. Um, mm. When you look back on it now, um, it, it was pioneering. But at the time, we were literally just feeling in the dark, weren't we, to kind of navigate a space that was forgotten. One, 100%. We can sort of jump into, um, and, I, and I would love to talk about your journey with how the initial 
sort of concept, whether that's Stan Seven or Gold to Water, um, began with you, but we'll do that a little later in the episode. I want to kind of start from the beginning. Um, so to any of our listeners based out in Angola, um, I guess your last name is one that they would recognize. Um, but you come from a family of, I guess, freedom fighters from a time when um, Angola had a dictator. And if you look at the world in 2023 now, it seems so far away, but it really isn't. Um, And your dad, along with 59 others, um, were able to smuggle themselves out of the country and return with hope, essentially, was what they brought back with them. Do you mind talking about what it was like growing up under that veil um, where safety is a concern um, and and having the spotlight on you guys on upon your return back to Angola? That's a wonderful question. Um, that's that's right. My parents, both of them, were freedom fighters. They were in the guerrilla and the maquis fighting for the independence of Angola from Portuguese colonial government for multiple years. Now as an adult, when I think of it, my father for over a decade, my mother for five years, when I think about spending five years like in the jungle, not knowing where your next meal comes from, you know, uh, the Portuguese used napalm in Angola. Um, so, you know, and there, this was, uh, and Angola is really where the, the sort of hotbed of military conflict that led to the independence of all of Lusophone Africa, so including Mozambique, Cape Verde, Santome, Guinea. Um, I think about that sacrifice that my parents made, and it was huge and tremendous, and all of the unknown, anonymous, and heroic soldiers with them. And you're right, we do forget. And I think that that, it seems a long time ago, it's not, and, and I think that this is one of why it's so important to talk about it now still, because everything that we have and everything and every opportunity we live is really the result of people, the generation before us, giving their lives um, for hard fought victories in human rights and dignity, and especially in the liberalization of African peoples. So growing up with that, you know, it's, it was, a, was inspiring. Um, I was filled with admiration for my parents, even though I, you know, once I went to a Femi Kuti concert and I interviewed him backstage. This was when I used to do a, a TV, a little TV show in Spain. And he said something that was so brilliant because I asked him to comment on sort of American foreign policy and the candidates at the pres- presidency at the time, which I think was John Kerry. And he said something that I think really expresses a reality. And he said, you know, whenever I see people sort of glorify their veteran days, I'm mistrustful because nobody who goes to war comes back normal. And so I think this is really something that we rarely mention about armed conflict. Angola had a 37-year war. We had colonial war, civil war. And my daughter is the first generation of Angolans who is alive in a peace. And so you, you, there's a lot to digest about that kind of personal history. My parents were lovely, loving parents that adored um, laughing, never spoke about their roles or themselves 
as heroic in any way and really did not like to talk about war, as most people who have gone to war are. But they also were dealing with a lot of trauma. And so was I. And so were my siblings. And we were also in the you know diaspora because my father had a stroke. He was paralyzed, couldn't live in Angola. And so we had to kind of travel a little bit the world looking for cures for his medical condition. And then we settled in Spain. So we were, and I was 11 years old when we settled in Spain. And there were no African families in Spain. So I was living out this kind of um, identity as I was the first daughter that was born in a free Angola of freedom fighting parents. And, and by the way, also grandparents. As, we go, as I go down my lineage, I, my grandparents were also um, nationalists or at least, you know, had, had different method, like alliances toward the idea of a sovereign, independent and free uh, African population. Um, But I was living in Madrid. I was living in Spain, where I was a foreigner and an immigrant. And interestingly, even in Angola, I get the you don't look Angolan, because my family is very mixed. We have, as most families are, and um, but we have it very, it's very obvious that we're mixed. It's not as diffused. And so um, even in Angola there, and as a result of colonialism and all the identity politics and our civil war and the politici- politicization of African identity as a weapon and as a attempt to gain power by very budding new political parties, um, an idea was created around light-skinned Angolans and light-skinned Africans. Mm, colorism. Um, yeah, that, that also affected sort of my identity and my perception of my parents' fight because I, I knew my parents had spent all these years and where my father was the military head military strategist of the War of Independence, yet he didn't look African enough for the political parties who used that line in order to gain access of power. So it was a, it's a, it, it was a real, I think, as most people say, and as you have just said, it was a, that experience was a preparation for my life and for my purpose that I didn't know was happening to me in my childhood. Mm. I was going to say um, there's something about the betrayal in that moment, right? And I think one of the reasons why I also started the podcast was because this question around identity and what work are we doing in what ways and how is that interpreted? Because there's a bunch of Africans in the diaspora who are creating a new world, essentially, or creating bridges to the continent. Um, And I think in the first season, I would get a what are third culture Africans? Why the name third culture Africans? I'd get that a lot, Mm. actually. Um, I love that name. And for a long time, I, as an African, had an insecurity over how African enough was I, right? Um, and, And whether or not my work could be seen as purposeful enough to be making a difference. Um, but I was surrounded by, you know, friends who were all very much focused around 
their African identity and creating a bridge for better, for more, for a better future. Friends like you, friends like Mishan, friends like, you know, lots of friends that I've had on the show. And like you say, you know, it's not a new, it's not a new experience. Um, Mm. And even within Africa, that same experience exists, you know, whether that's tribal. And I think for me, that was the heart of the creation of this show to say, to paint the different colors and perspectives of Africans in their different places and their relationship with the continent, the purpose of their work, how their work is really shifting the needle on culture as we know it, even though we don't sit to think about um, how that's happened. For instance, you know, to a young, you know, Gen Z Angolan, you know, the idea of there being a um, group of young freedom fighters who gave up everything, really, their health, their families, to be able to have the Angola today that they have almost seems so far-fetched in their mind. But 1960s is, isn't a long time ago, you know? No. It's not a century ago, you know? It's a few decades ago. And there are people who are directly impacted by that time period walking around in the queue at the supermarket um, with you. You know, it's, it's not something even though it's something for the history books and we hear the stories, I think hearing your perspective as a child from very much that era is beautiful. And, and, and there is a betrayal that happens within our own communities, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I you know, one of the things that I learned um, working in the UN is to try to always, in conversation, bring evidence, And so let me just paint a little bit a picture, because I think this is one of the things of what colonial Africa, Lusophone Portuguese Africa was was like. So before independence in Portuguese Africa, if you were black, you had to you could only study until the fourth grade and then you had to go work in the field, whatever field it was. was. Angola was the second largest exporter of coffee, for example, you know, sugarcane, oil. You had to go work. If you were the child of a, of a civil servant and therefore, you know, a mixed race child or, the, or a child of um, a, an immigrant or emigrated or white Portuguese colonial family, then you could go to school. But there were no universities in Angola because the Portuguese made sure not to create any higher education institutions in Angola so that if you had wanted to get a degree, you had to go back to Portugal. And study there, which is why my father was there. He was studying and he was he was pulled into the Air Force. And then he deserted the Air Force facing execution to join him, Pedro Pidge, the first president of Cape Verde, uh, Shisanu, the first president of Mozambique, uh, my aunt, who then um, was a communications person for the MPLA during the liberation movement, Michael Kabulu, who was then the first ambassador, I think, to Germany and the United States. So this group of young people from Mozambique, Cape Verde, and Angola, what they were facing was an at-home where they were actually the privileged because they were allowed to study in Portugal. But it was their commitment to all of the Angolans that were working in the field 
and couldn't go to restaurants, had limitations on their levels of education, salary base, um, capacity to move freely in the country with their families. You know, it was an apartheid colonial system. And so people forget that, I think, or we don't talk about that enough, you know, and and how much, how different, how, the incredible victory that they had. Because today, Angolans are facing poverty and difficult economic situations and and depending on where in Angola, very severe deprivations and in other places of Angola, a more middle income country type reality. So there is a lot of work to be done, but they are free. That, that it is not the same as living in a colonial regime. So in 1975, when Angola through a hard fought battle gained its independence, there were only 400 Angolans with more than a fourth grade education. So this is the thing that the this group of young people was fighting for. They were not only fighting for, you know, the, the end of oppression, but also that access, the capacity to access information and your full potential as a human being and your full human dignity um, in Southern Africa. And so those, that, I mean, to start a country and to try to manage a country with only 400 people that have a fourth grade education is very difficult. And in Southern Africa, we faced a steep climb towards development. Now, in terms of identity politics, which was what you were mentioning, and the, and the deep betrayal, 100%, I've, I've, I, that's for sure has been part of how I've experienced the, the, um, the internal fights. But identity politics was, has origins. So I think it's in the 1600s, so the 17th century, a Portuguese king paid a uh, Portuguese journalist to describe Africans and darker-skinned people as an inferior race in order to justify slavery and the uh, incredible amount. So identity politics has an origin and as a political propaganda. And, and we are now all sort of seeing in many different countries, because more, a lot of countries that you go to, you will find an identity politics war. I've lived in Spain part of my life. There's an identity politics war in Spain. There, the United States, it's like there's a lot of identity politics. And it's, in a way, I see it as almost just the easiest way to get votes the easiest way to get political support, the easiest way to fire up people, which is the idea of that person is other than you and that person should not have more access to wealth, stability or whatever than you because it comes down to that. And it's just a manipulation of identity because we are all mixed identities as you look at the human genome and DNA. And interestingly, to bring it back to just like a personal, lovely place, I loved the that you called it, they're cultural Africans. And I'll tell you that what was interesting about my story is that when I would come to Angola, I would feel out of place because I was being raised outside of Angola because of family health issues and because I was part of this incredible heroic family and that has its, an impact. And... When I would, was in Spain, I felt out of, of place because I was African and there was not a big African community in Spain and in Europe at all at the time. And where I actually felt for the first time in family and in community was when I went to university and I met a bunch of wonderful Nigerians. <laughs> and, Go Nigerians! My, my Nigerian buddies who were all sort of boarding school and Liberian and, you know, who were boarding school kids 
that felt third culture Africans. And in that third, and this is why I ended up moving to London and where I exactly met you, met our group of friends, and again felt, these are my people. <laughs> and there I felt totally at home and understood because it didn't matter where in Southern Africa or Africa we were from. Having had a multicultural, multi-education, um, a multi-country experience, yes, we could relate to one another in a certain way. And we were creating this new kind of identity and, and way of looking at the world, which, by the way, I think is so important because for sure, third culture, anything, third culture Africans, third culture Europeans, third culture Asians, third culture people will be much more difficult to convince them of voting for identity politics. Yes. Right? Yeah, a thousand percent. <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, with with your beginnings and your transitions, right? Was there a freedom for you to be able to go into things like TV? Oh, by the way, before I even say that, uh, flowers time, you've got two MBAs, cum laude, Boston University. <laughs> so uh, my girl is super smart. Um, oh, and <clears throat> not just book smart, but you've found yourself exploring, you know, communications and that's in TV, putting people's stories out there. And then that transition to design and being able to give voice to designers and, and make a difference. Was there something specific that sparked that in you? You know, it's interesting. I actually felt kind of, I think one of the sort of negative or, or more challenging aspects of having such a, of living history, of having history so present in your daily life, is that I actually felt, I felt a really, a real difficulty being comfortable in, in the professional sort of world. And I, and I struggled to find a place. So what I wanted to do was make documentaries. I kind of wanted to take, I wanted to tell, because what I did notice is that no one was telling certain aspects of history and certain parts, especially, you know, Southern African heroic history. We, you know, the Angolan Liberation War was the direct cause of the end of apartheid in South Africa. And that's, a, you know, that's a story that no one was telling, for example. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to tell, um, I'm going to make documentaries about stories. And so I did. I did. I, I got a job at the History Channels in Disney in Spain, and I wanted to make my documentaries. And then I accidentally fell into uh, presenting a TV show. My brother was an actor. He decided to go to a casting, asked me to go along with him, and they selected both of us. And we did this kind of city Madrid TV channel where we were showing a multicultural Madrid that didn't quite exist yet, but we were, yeah. we were projecting it into the future, you know? And, uh, and we did the show in multiple languages and we would interview people that came. And so I think that sometimes life kind of like pushes you somewhere, right? And it kind of directs you in that space. And I was, and at that time I was, I, I, I really wanted to continue in the docu documentary world, but you know what happened? That was when reality TV mm, came in full yeah. force. Mm. Hit. And so all of a sudden there were no more budgets for you know, historic, you know, National Geographic History Channel kind of documentaries. And all of the budgets started going to these reality TV shows, which I didn't identify with at all. And so I thought, okay, I need to, the TV world is no longer 
didn't seem to anymore to be a place where I could tell stories because I had made this TV show about people who made the world better and three different continents. And, and that the weekend we launched, I think was the weekend that, you know, a big reality TV show launched also in Spain and we were really hit audience wise. And I thought, gosh, how do you compete with people just, you know, like you can put a camera in a room and then and let people behave a certain way and look a certain way, or you can tr go through the process of trying to tell narrate a story. And we, our budgets were, you know, we, it just we just couldn't compete. We couldn't compete with sort of popular culture, more lowbrow content. Uh -huh. I'll just say it. That's really yeah. what it was. That and I thought, gosh, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't match. Like I couldn't. I didn't feel comfortable in that world. So that's when I went into design. So I and and it was actually in the documentaries that I was making at the time that one of the people I interviewed was in Mozambique, and and he was doing sort of wood jewelry and um, and little design products in and creating employment in rural Mozambique. And I thought, gosh, what a beautiful thing! Because I saw firsthand how you can transform the life of a person the, for whom you create. Uh, uh, that kind of employment. And in certain parts of Southern Africa, you know, so as I said, low levels of education and access to education as a result of a very recent colonial and then civil war and then global economics, you know, system reality. So how do you, how do you get income into the hands of people and how can you train them very quickly into something and into having a job? So what, what inspired me at the time was, okay, I'm not going to tell the story. I'm actually going to be the story. So let me go and try to figure out how to create a road to market for these design products and these artisan products that are being made and sold locally, but in markets where they're, you know, they'll find a, a larger access to market. And at the time, there were people doing things like this, like Pippa, Pippa Small with her jewelry was doing stuff like this in the UK. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to London and go for it, which is when we met. So Stan 7 was really built from that. And it was a, as you said, definitely, a, I mean, this was 10 years ago when no one was talking about social impact and where, you know, the logistics and operational infrastructure necessary in terms of sending product, um, having warehouses for inventory. <laughs> but I think no one was talking about social impact with Africa in mind and luxury in mind. So it was it was the triad, right? That was the first conversation where it was, you can one, whoop-de-woo guys, luxury can come out of the continent, number one, <laughs> right? <laughs> Even right, though right. we kind of have all of the resources of everything that we value on this planet, um, right. So right. It, 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 it was it was one of those, hey, ho, did you know that luxury can come <laughs> out of Africa? Um, when you think about it, it does seem a little bit silly considering gold, diamonds, all of that good stuff comes off the continent. Yeah. But somehow the general perception didn't equate a finished product coming out of the continent. Then there was, hey, here is something that has been crafted by African hands that will give you that feeling of luxury, but actually you're doing something good for a community. Whereas I think up until that point, it only existed in gift aid, food aid, in the general right. consumer's mind. There, right. there wasn't this, there wasn't this conversation around 
artisan craftsmanship and investing in that. That's exactly right. And um, what, what we were able to live for the three years that we existed and lived and sold and had a community and, uh, and a customer base because there were well-known designers and architects in London at the time that put their name and their sort of design to some of the pieces. And, and the reason why we, I chose that path was because exactly that, because we had to break the barrier of the, of the, like what they call the impulse emotional product, which is if there's a well-known name that kind of stamps and says, this is worthy of your purchase, mm. right? Mm. Of your desire, yeah. then we will be more likely to access these kind of Conrad shop clients and the kind of, you know, design trend, um, or design followers that will that um, don't necessarily look as the continent as a place for beautiful design or finished product goods. So yeah, and that was definitely and that is what we did with Stand Seven. And it was, you know, we had a really great three year ride and then hit the three year kind of classic small business block, which is you have to scale. And when you have that kind of structure and and you're not you know ikea or you know what i mean you don't have a big kind of uh comp like uh funding behind you it's very difficult to scale especially at that time 10 years ago now mind you this was before i mean entrepreneurship was Shopify. Wasn't, entrepreneurship wasn't cool then let's be honest like we were we were in the oh what do you do and like you would you would kind of brace yourself before you described it in a room because everyone was pursuing proper careers right and there you were yes. sort of fluffing away with with pretty things <laughs> literally that was the perception people literally when i tell people now that we are not from like when i look at like this new wave of african entrepreneurs and what they're able to do with social media and the internet and yeah, you know yeah. their, their personas and i'm like i come from a time where you were shamed in a way yeah for, for being this it wasn't cool we were cool amongst ourselves because we felt we were doing something good but yeah. to the wider community we were almost like we were playing right we weren't we, we didn't have yes. we didn't have proper jobs <laughs> we were yes we didn't have and or proper business ideas no. because at the time it was if you had a proper business idea it was a digital product that was going to get vc funding exactly so you were doing you were going to be the new facebook or you're going to be the new dating app or you're going to be the new you know app that organizes your closet or the new app that does blah blah and that's what made you cool and interesting product making product was like oh no you're gonna make product oh you're so old school first number one yeah. number two how are you gonna make product in africa like <laughs> you know like and how, you know and how are we, who's gonna want to buy this and how are you gonna get it here who's gonna buy it that was the question <laughs> Who? and then let's talk about fundraising where you're like this there is proof of concept let's raise some money because i remember at, at your your journey to fundraising with Stan Seven. So oh, gosh. you had been able to, you guys had proof of concept. Yes, we did. We had proof of concept sales. We had, you know, customer reviews, all of it. And we could not get funding. Um, and interestingly, I remember this really well because we were part of like a Google hub 
one of these, uh, what do they call it? Like accelerators, uh, incubators. Yeah, Google yeah, incubate yeah. accelerators, incubators for new up and coming in the press. Cause we were mm. in the press mm. startups. And one of the, one of the companies that was with us at the time was like the girl Facebook. I don't remember what it was called, but it was like a Facebook dating app Bumble. that got so much VC Bumble, funding. Bumble. No, it wasn't, it wasn't Bumble. It, it wasn't Bumble. No, it was like a Facebook. It had a different name. No, I wish it was Bumble. Then it would have made sense. It was not Bumble. It was <laughs> no. It was some. It was a thing where you would where, where the the men would be rated negatively. So okay. you could log on and say, "That's my ex boyfriend. He did this to me. He did that to me. He did that to me." Gosh. And you could basically you get you would get reviews. You could get reviews, kind of like a Facebook yeah. for women to be able to get reviews on the men they were potentially dating. dating. Oh, wow. Anyways, this was, I mean, it got tons of funding and then mm. was banned in Brazil. Oh, wow. <laughs> and all of that funding was lost. Gone. You know, and gone. And I, and I remember seeing that story and seeing, gosh, all those investors who were so convinced that just because you had a digital product and therefore less risky in a way and more mm. scalable because really this was what it was about it was mm. about risk and scale yeah. risk and scale yeah and mind you vc funding like all funding is about growing something to resell it exactly right and reducing the cost as much as possible which in a way at the time seemed contrary to the idea of creating employment mm. Mm. and having fair wages yeah <laughs> and yeah. and sharing profits yeah. with communities Sustain sustainability wasn't wasn't cool then no you might no, as well no, really have wasn't. called yourself an ngo if your business <laughs> yes if your business had and, a sustainable element to it it was it was yes. Now, when I think about the world today and I, I look at a lot of people's value propositions in, in their businesses and I think, Jesus, we went through it. I like me personally, I went through a time where I was super insecure about Malay. I was and so beautiful. Yeah, but I was so insecure about it because we were talking about sustainability and creating jobs yeah. and luxury. And at one point it was almost like we were speaking gibberish. And in my heart, I was like, this makes sense. Like stand seven made sense. Gold to water made sense. Everybody else does this. Why as Africans, when it's us, is this presented in people's minds differently? Because we can, mm. we can appreciate it from Asia. You know, we can appreciate mm. it from Europe. We can appreciate it from Latin America. We can appreciate it from, you know, Northern America. But from the continent of Africa, there was just this barrier and I couldn't mm. understand it. And you guys were like at the forefront of the first world communication, right? Where you guys were educating essentially through Stand 7. And I just remember thinking, gosh, is this tide going to turn? And can we survive the tide turning? Because it had to turn, the, the, like looking at it now, 2023, the tide definitely has turned, you know. Um, but could could we survive it turning? And I, I guess, you know, you're speaking openly about Stand 7. Do you think you were too early? I think that there were, I've thought about this a lot and it's interesting. I've, I think we had three, I we made three big mistakes. One, we were too early for the size that we were envisioning. 
So I, I should have started with a much more focused product product offering. And then we would have been able to go to, to overcome the too early. But yes, we were too early. Like today, there's, for example, Studio 89, which is Rosario Dawson and Abrima. It was beautiful fashion, made in Ghana fashion line, you know, and all the kind of high fashion mm. today. But that's today. I remember when I was with Stan 7 in AD, in the Guardians, like, you know, and the um, observers, like what to buy lists, they were beginning to to make the patterns of the clothes in Ghana. So I was, so it took them four years later to get to market. Uh, four years before I was already in market telling the story, I, I had product. But so I had too large of a, a product offering. We had too large of a product offering. I think that that confused the market because it was too many new things, too many products, a new story made in Africa, made by designers. It was so it was a confusing. It was too many things for the market to respond positively to. I should have had one clear message. I think that was one of our mistakes. Another mistake. Yeah, I think so. I, I that's one of the things I thought. I thought, wow, if I had started started with just like one bracelet, for example. You know, like what, you know, or one tray or, you know, or one mirror or one product that people could just first adopt as this is beautiful, made in Africa, designed by a famous designer, creating employment, you know, with one, you know, focused product offering. I think that would have been because we were too early for sure. And, and, I, and it's interesting over the years, so many people have come back to me and said, I, I thought about Sun7, I thought about Gold to Water. I, th I went back and, and, um, and used it as a reference. That was one thing. The other thing is just for any entrepreneur that's out there now, and, and, and this part of your show, I love talking. I love hearing about it when you discuss it, and I would love to talk about it. And I think talking about mistakes and failures, because in the end, we, we folded and were absorbed by another company. So I think it's really important. One of the things, mistakes I made as a, as a, as a, you know, entrepreneur was that I didn't hire uh, a talent that was more skilled and better than me at different areas of the business. And I think that this is one of the keys to making it. Yeah, you just did something. You need to you just hire did something people. that I do because you hesitated when you wanted to say entrepreneur. Did you like? Did I? <laughs> you did because we're from that generation. Because the yeah, measures of yeah. success are what exactly? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, definitely. Uh, you're, yeah, you're right. And by the way, anyone who's had a successful business has had 10 unsuccessful ones before. Or, and what is success? I mean, we never, we didn't lose anyone's money. No, no. <laughs> you know, we were invested in and our investor made money. So we didn't lose anyone's money. We didn't, nobody ever, we didn't leave any salaries unpaid. And in fact, the story of that seven is really beautiful because we did have, 30 women in refuge in rape camps in Bosnia working for a year and a half making product. We employed them for almost two years and they were able to, you know, rebuild their lives. Yeah. We hired young people with, um, uh, you know, different abilities and certain handicaps in Sri Lanka making toys for three years. Uh, we created employment for them in Costa Rica, in Sierra Leone, in Angola. So, we, we did have an, a really great impact in the lives of our supplier base. And we were able to provide um, salaries and impact and work for them. And that was a wonderful part of the Stance Ever journey. But yeah, so that, that I think is really important for any entrepreneur that's listening. Like hire the person that has the skill that you don't have 
And that is the experience that you don't have. And forget affinity, forget kind of, you know, um, that, or forget potential, higher proven work experience. Because there are so many battles in the entrepreneur's journey that you can't even foresee. So it's really important to have sort of experienced, proven professionals that have skill set that you don't have um, to be able to work with you. I think that was another one. And finally, the third one is the thing you've hit, which is that, you know, we had to overcome that kind of idea. And I think, you know, of of what what, it is, what does it mean to be made in Africa or to come from Africa and the sort of Africa luxury story. By the way, how did you feel when you saw the Chanel in Senegal? Oh, my God. <laughs> um, so this is um, something that I've been sitting with for probably the last year. And there's something about the identity of M- Malay or my work now that I'm having to rethink um, because all of a sudden, you know, people with bigger budgets, people with more talented teams are coming in and they're redefining a space that doesn't belong to them, you know? And there's something about how, it's almost like a clutch for power now. And what, <laughs> what is the evolution, right? Because essentially we were all guinea pigs that created proof of concept. We all know that Africa is the next frontier for any market in the, in the world. And now we are now in a big boys game. Um, because before all of us small guys were happy existing because the the big boys were mass market and they were focused on that and that's all they cared about. All of a sudden, the big boys have tapped into the idea that there is growing disposable income, there's an affinity for local, um, and they are now speaking our language. You know, it's like the cultural, without using the word cultural appropriation, that is now being sold and we're buying it. Well, big brands need authenticity, Yes. Big brands need authenticity. They need, and they also need legacy, right? And in the last year, you know, we've been quite quiet with Malay in terms of growth and pushing for change and and something new. and, And the main reason is because I've been sitting with what is the evolution of the brand, looking at the market, where it is, the trends, where it's going, because there has to be an evolution, right? We, we, we started in a time where we were building something out of nothing. We are now on a global stage. The marketplace is now global for us. And innovation is happening in so many different ways by bigger players too. So what is our evolution? And I, and I think the changes that I've seen with Chanel in Senegal, let's be fair, a lot of the designs from a lot of the big design houses are inspired by us. They're inspired by the continent, our culture, our people. And for decades, it's gone unseen and uncredited. The credit hasn't been given. And for the first time, and it's not the first time that brands have, big luxury brands have done this. You know, if Saint Laurent did it in the 70s, there have been moments over time where some designers with an African connection have 
given or, or paid homage, right, to the birthplace of a lot of their inspirations. But all of a sudden now it's being celebrated and we're accepting it in a way that I hope does not limit the innovation that comes out of the continent. And I love a challenge and I've seen it as a challenge. <laughs> I really do. Uh, I, like if, if it's not going to be difficult, I don't bother. And now I feel like this is the new challenge for me, which is what is the next iteration? So what is Mac 2 of our, our generation of businesses? Where do we take this? You know, the, the, the standard blueprint is get absorbed by someone else. In a few years, your business dies, which is essentially what happens, right? The name dies, the legacy dies, you get your payout and that's it. In another 10 years, forgotten, gone, gone, gone. Maybe the supply chain might exist in some ways, but the name is gone, the purpose is gone. Um, and now I'm like, okay, what does Mac 2 look like? Because the market's moving and it's changing and big players are present. And, and that's, I guess, to answer your question, that's what it's created for me. Well, that's wonderful. I can't wait to see it because I love Malay. And <laughs> I'll tell you, though, I see the other side of the story mm. because I'm in Angola, right? And in right now, this year, and in Angola, we have some Angolan brands. A lot of them are produced outside of Angola produced in Portugal, produced in Italy. And that enrages me as well. And when I speak to the founders and I say, why? And they say, oh, there's just not the human resources here. I would need a lot more funding to be able to train people. And, yeah. I, and I'm always like, so train them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's, why are you producing something in, a, you know, but maybe that's the globalization that we need to understand and, I don't, and, I don't know. and live in. But, and, but it does go to that point of, you know, the betrayal, if you, if to use a word, but I always, but when that, when I first arrived in Angola after living in London, I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I would, and I have a cousin who has a, she started here an artisan market, which is every one Sunday of the month. And it's beautiful. It's like on the, in the capital city by the beach. And she said, look, my biggest problem is the authenticity of the products that people bring, because many of them want to sell things here that are imported from Asia. And I say, no, you, this is an artisan market. You have to make it yourself. Yeah. So not just on the level of brands, like middle class purchase brands, but also on the level of artisans and artifacts, they are not made in Angola. So, so it's interesting to see that there is this kind of, um, there is that kind of, well, you know, barrier to entry of producing locally. And it's and it's a definitely a result of our history and something that we need to move over. Now, in terms of Malay, I want to tell you a co recent conversations that I've had because you know, as entrepreneurs are, we're always um, thinking. I had an inter very interesting conversation because I remember when you know you launched Malay, and it was such it's such a beautiful, incredibly luxurious line. And then <clears throat> recently, I read that Byredo, who had an incredible you know, the perfume brand that had an incredible sale to a big Spanish company. <clears throat> so it was valued in the billions and was sold for an undisclosed, but over $1 billion. Amount, yeah. To a, yeah, amount. Their best-selling fragrance is called Balafrique. Yeah. 
And I remember when I described Mali to people and people would say, but would people really buy scents made from Africa Africa or Mm. African inspired? And this was, yeah. And this was also before Black Panther, Black Panther. I mean, even Disney had that challenge, right? When Black Panther was being thought of, they said, would, are are global audiences going to go to a African, uh, fully African superhero movie? And it, and they did. So I think we all have the, I, I mean, I get what, I see the goodwill in Chanel Dakar connection and how they're funding like a museum. But the question is always how many local, how much local employment is being created? I think for me, that's always kind of the driving force. And I, and, and that's been one of the main battles I would say that I've had with myself as a, whenever I've been a business person, which is that business people are supposed to be, in theory, motivated by profit. And I've always been motivated by creating employment. So that's something that I wonder if is also part of the thing that we were redefining and that you continue to redefine, which is what is the purpose of business really? And can business as a force for good be part of the story? Of course, we can look across the ocean and see our American sisters doing it. So in the United States, there's the 15% pledge. There are tons of companies with a sort of social impact message produced locally that with diversity at its core, but that's a much bigger market that they're accessing. So maybe it's also size of market and how much audience you can have that, that defines how much we are able to gain in terms of market share. Yeah. The big players now are in the market and they are just eating up the market share. And actually, Malay was a political statement to say that we can create it end to end out of this continent and it will do well. Now, okay, proof of concept, but the market's moved on now. So we're no longer educating. How do we stay relevant? And I think this is now where the conscious effort needs to be made um, within us as a community, actually, of innovators and creators. You know, the art scene's doing it quite well, where they're not budging. They're not budging. They're this, you know, feet planted in the ground. And this is our space and these are our rules. I think when it comes to consumer goods, there is the temptation of scale for validation. Where where does that end up in the long term becomes the question. And, and I think ultimately, you know, I, I don't have the answer to that yet. And if, if anyone listening has the answer, please feel free to, <laughs> to comment on this episode um, in whatever form that you, you use, because I would love for that discussion to carry on. Um, your, your work has spanned into, you know, from entrepreneurship into the UN, and, you know, for the last few years, you, you've kind of given, you know, a lot, of, a lot of your time working within the UN partnerships, communications, etc. What about that transition? And, and one, did you feel as though that transition was organic? Because obviously that came after Stand 7, Gold to Water. Those were two enterprises you founded. And then going into an institution like the UN while still wearing an entrepreneurial hat within a a structured organization like that? 
You know, it's so life has these kind of moments of um, where where things come together. That's how I felt. I felt that there were years where I would I, the feeling was, where is this going? <laughs> and then all of a sudden you'd have these like moments like, oh, so I think that in my first interview at UNICEF, which was the first agency that I worked for, the what got me through the door was Gold to Water and Stand 7. And it was because we had done the distribution of water filters um, in, the, in the border, in Cabinda. So we distributed water filters to a community of 23,000 people through the social impact of Stand 7. And, and access to clean water remains to be, you know, one of the issues for children. Yeah, I mean, the, the main cause of, of death and disease for children in Angola is diarrhea. So clean water is a huge thing. So it, the fact that that was on my CP and I had lived that experience made that sort of, because the UN, you know, um, admittance process is grueling. You go through multiple interviews and exams. And I think that that's really what, made me stand out as a candidate. And so it's interesting when life has these things where it's, it's it's taking you on this road. It also, having come from entrepreneurship and social impact, it also gave me an incredible skill set that the UN has been developing and trying to develop recently, which is resource mobilization and how to fundraise with the private sector. And also how to translate that into a, a, a purposeful activity for the community, right? So it, the UN, you know, the UN, it's, first of all, can I just say that I am no, not a spokesperson for the United Nations. And when you work for the United Nations, you're not allowed to speak for the United Nations unless you are officially a spokesperson or an executive of an agency. And that's because at any given time, there are UN colleagues that are facing life-threatening situations in order to bring humanitarian emergency relief um, healthcare uh, to communities in refugee camps, war zones, post-war zones, or developing countries. So in order to safeguard the health and well-being um, of those colleagues, and, and in order not to create information or content that can be misused or misinterpreted, um, it is, it's really not right to speak for the UN or speak about the UN. I can talk a, bit, a little bit about my own personal journey, which was that what I did in the UN was and what I do is I've gone through three different agencies. Now I'm entering into UNDP. And interestingly, the United Nations is, be, is beginning a whole new line of work, reaching out to the private sector tentatively and with a lot of due diligence. But as the world has changed and as, and as you know, um, the private sector has become a very active participant in development, and so there needs to be a language to deal with the private sector. There needs to be the skill set to deal with the private sector and to mobilize resources. Resources are dwindling in the NGO development world because the population has increased. We are now 8 billion people. And unfortunately, we are now faced post-global pandemic and with new wars. I mean, who would have imagined, if you had told me when I started working in the UN, that there would be the threat of a new global war? And that the Ukraine-Russian conflict would dramatically change the landscape of, 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 what, of what seemed to be the era of peace. Because we were, we were heading towards a world in which there were only five conflicts, you know, Venezuela, Sudan, Yemen, you know, Myanmar. There were five conflicts and everyone else seemed to have been 
you know, po as Fukuyama said, post-war, you know, like now we're going to area of peace. Now everything has changed in, in, from that perspective. So, you know, back to this notion of me as a professional, very interestingly, and I think this is if, if our audience could get something from this, I hope so, which is if you really pay attention and, and in my life, whenever I've shown up authentically as myself, it has opened doors into a new purpose that I didn't know existed. And, and therefore, I think where I've been the most successful in the UN, I did bring my communications experience and have told great stories and gotten some great audiences for some real sort of what they call communication for behavior change, which is when you communicate in order to, you know, inspire and, and, and walk hand in hand with the community to change certain behaviors. Um, that can be life-saving and, and more importantly, that can defend human rights ongoing. So th that I've worked on, but I've also been very successful fundraising. And that skill set came from all the punches that I got mm. <laughs> fundraising first and seven. Yeah. And, and what's, what's been really interesting about my human journey is turning out to be interesting. And I think that's something that I can mention and should be mentioned, which is that in fact, Africa is now changing and Southern Africa is now changing from being a donor recipient zone to being a donor zone. My experience is that I fundraised in Angola through the Angolan government and through Angolan private sector. And that's something that was not happening before. Before it was Southern Africa receives funds from foreign nations through the UN system. Not anymore. Southern Africa is now a donor. And, and, and private sector in Angola is now a donor, multi-million dollar donor to UN programs. And I've been, I've, I've experienced and witnessing that change. I've been one of the, on the teams that have experienced, you know, coordinated the efforts and experienced that change. And that, and we're at the beginning of that. And I can assure you that in five years, you know, this will definitely change the way development programs and, and international cooperation um, moves forward. And I think that that's, it's a really important thing to say also, because one of the, I think, sadder aspects of the UN not having, not being able to speak about UN work is that unfortunately there's all this kind of deep state controversy, you know, perceptions, erroneous perceptions of what the work is, but there's also a neg our continent has you know, particular perceptions about how honest it is about its will to improve the lives of the most vulnerable people. And I can, my experience has been that, in fact, many people here are heroic in doing the best they can against, in a steep climb to improve the lives of the most vulnerable sort of members of the community. Quick, you, you mentioned fundraising. Um... And that's now your your forte within a, a large organization. Any tips to any of our listeners? You know, three tips on fundraising because I think often, you know, you know, statistics they say you know we know the numbers around how much funding is given to to black founders across the globe, et cetera, et cetera. Then you talk about black female founders let alone the, the minuscule percentage of African founders that get any, any funding. Three tips you would give to anyone with an idea with proof of concept, because I think, you know, anyone in this market 
place who's looking for funding needs to have proof of concept? My, my first and most important tip is lead with return on investment. Because if that is the, that's the first thing you should open with, because that's the fastest way to overcome whatever preconceived notion the donor or investor that is in front of you can have about your capacity to succeed in the implementation of your idea, because they're not valuing an idea. They are they're in their mind. They're saying, can this person or this team make it happen? And what will that what would the return of that be for me? So I would, you know, and I think that that's, that's really my number one tip is lead with return on investment so that you can then have all the conversations about the actual content of what you're doing. So my first tip is lead with return on investment and have that real, whether you're an NGO, whether you're a, you know, small businesses. And of course the, the conversations are different and, and, and different donors and different investors will be different. And this, this, so my second one is research your investor or your donor. So research your investor and your donor. They're more likely to invest and or donate in the areas that they are comfortable and knowing and knowledgeable um, in. So it, it, they are more likely to stick to the industries, programs, um, you know, uh, areas that they are interested in and well-versed in because that's the language they speak, that's where they have experience and that's where they feel like there's less risk because they can manage their funds more accordingly. So first one, lead with return on investment, really have the idea of, and, and this, is, this is controversial. If you're, if you're an NGO or a development agency and you hear someone in your team say, lead with return on investment, most people are more because, you know, we're talking about academic kind of development, international civil servants, and they will say the investment is human life. <laughs> you know, what do you mean? Yeah, you can't quantify. No, but actually you have to be able to say this dollar or this hundred dollars or this million dollars will get exactly this. Oh my God. And will impact these many lives and will have this impact. You know what? You have to be able to make that. You know what's so crazy with that, with that line of thought. So I teach at business schools in my spare time. (laughs) Um, I didn't know that Zayze. That's amazing. So I go in and teach um, brand innovation or startup business strategies um, at business schools. And what's so interesting is the fact that you have these really clever people and that bit on return on investment and qualifying your ideas with data is something that just is missed. It's missed and I don't know why. And I feel like, but Google is your friend, dude. <laughs> like, <laughs> just Google. Got a question? Google. Got a question? There are articles, there is research, there are numbers. You know, get the data. And also, if there is no proof or you cannot answer with, here is what I am getting back, it's not a great idea. It just isn't. Yeah. And it shouldn't be an yeah, idea. It, it should be a strategy. Yes. And most importantly, you won't like people have 10 seconds of their day to give you literally. And they, and everyone has this heavy agenda uh, of things that they have to do, things that targets that they have to reach um, objectives that they have to meet 
situations they have to manage. So you really have to grab, you know, the attention of your donor slash potential investor quickly. And you have to have thought that out 100%, the numbers and the evidence. So for me, that's, you know, I'm with you 100%. And, and, I've, and I've also been in, in the room where people talk about great ideas or great concepts and how beautiful this is. And how, or in, in the development world, it's we are strengthening the capacity of municipal authorities to. And by the time you finish, the donor is like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Legit. Legit. You're yeah. like, so, so, so what am I buying again? <laughs> Exactly. And where is, yeah, exactly. Where is this development assistant exactly going and, and what will, and what happens when you don't have in the development world, if you don't have a good ROI on human, on how many lives you can impact uh, a good ROI story, what will happen is often development assistance will go towards things because that's easier to quantify. Okay. So I'm going to buy vaccines. Okay. So I'm going to buy cars, right. To, for transport. Okay. So I'm going to purchase Computers, oh, right? But at the end of the day, really, it, that's just because the the narrative of ROI is easier to understand. There, my third tip. So we've got ROI, right? Lead with ROI. The second one is really research your donor or your investor so that you know what industry and what sector they're comfortable with, so that you speak to their knowledge and 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 what they know. My third one is uh, esoteric one, if you will, for, we will allow it to say. <laughs> Please believe do. Believe in yourself. Oh, my God. It sounds easy and it sounds like, oh, I'm just giving a simple. No, there is so much money in the world. It's an abundant world. There is tons of prosperity, tons of money. There are tons of successful people that look just like us, just like you, whoever you are listening, in all fields and industries, believe in yourself. By the way, no one can believe in you unless you believe in you. And believe in yourself every day. Like, like that's the game. Look in the mirror and say, I believe in you. Like, I have an active pra practice of self-belief. Because you'll need it, right? You need to put your boxing gloves on and you need to say, I believe in myself. And watch, you know, any, I think any person that we know that has, you know, like a, achieved an external amount, like a, a amount of success that we can perceive externally has had a constant self monologue of, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. So have that monologue, create that practice. Do you need to light a candle? Do you need to go jogging? Do you need to look in the mirror and say, I love you? What is it that you need to do, but do it daily so that when the moment comes, you are prepared to vibrate in that sort of level of consciousness amazing my last question so you've done all this these changes have all, all happened alongside <laughs> yeah. motherhood Let, <laughs> yeah <laughs> um <laughs> you know the one the one question which most you know entering motherhood in itself is a journey but the one question i get asked often is how do you do it all and it's such a hard question to answer, but I'm going to ask it to you because I think, you know, you've mothered across continents while building a career. And I think you would probably put it more beautifully than I ever will. How have you been able to do it all? <laughs> it's such a beautiful question, Zizi, and it's I'm so honored that you see that in me, I, I have to tell you, I, I like, I tear up when I think about my daughter because I think in fact, her birth has made me 
And, um, and it's been a real commitment to showing her a better world, leaving a better world for her. And, and, and this idea of, I want my daughter to be proud of me and not in some sort of like, you know, movie imperialistic way, but really like, I, I would, I really want the only way for her to be happy, successful, fulfilled in her life is for her to have an example of that. <laughs> and the only way for her to feel, to believe in herself is for her to have an example of that. And the only way for her to deal with frustration and tragedy and sadness and know that she can overcome and be on the other side of that um, is for her to have an example of that. And so my answer to how do you do it all is I don't. Sometimes she's shouting at me in the car going, mommy, <laughs> like yesterday. <laughs> Yesterday I picked her up from school and I was having this conversation. Uh, one of the things that I've worked on that I wanted to discuss here on the podcast is for the uh, incredible uh, First Lady of Angola and for her foundation, we've launched a clinic on a train. And I worked on that when I was an advisor to the Minister of Transport and as a as, um, curator of the foundation of the First Lady in between UN roles. Um, and this, and so yesterday I was on the phone with a, with a donor of the clinic. Um, and I was on my cell phone and this is the thing it, they always call five minutes before school pickup. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> honestly, they didn't call it like, honestly, they didn't call it 10, 15 in the morning while she was in school. No, they call five minutes before I drive into the school and they're like, please, can you just give us some more information about how the clinic is run, the team, your funding needs, what is the equipment, you know, <laughs> how long you've projected, but projected budgets. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, uh, I'm in the car. I don't have my Excel spreadsheets in yeah. front of me. <laughs> now is not I, I, a good time. <laughs> but you know, a donor and investor is a donor and investor. So I went into my whole speech, you know, it's a 13 people clinic. It will go from one side of the country until the border of Zambia. It targets rural communities that have uh, more difficult access to health services with ophthalmology and pediatric services. Angola is 60% of Angolans are under 25 uh, 37% of girls between 15 and 19 have already had their first pregnancy. So Angola is a country of very young teenage and adolescent mothers. So when you're on that train taking health services across from Benguela to Zambia, you have to take pediatric and maternal health care services. And the clinic is also uh, equipped for ophthalmology because it has a big impact in very little time. Um, it's, you know, the clinic is, is going to cost approximately $1.4 million a year to target from the third year, a hundred thousand, um, clients or, you know, services or, or consults per year. So I give that whole speech and my daughter's knocking on the door going, <laughs> they will humble you. She opens the door. She's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I have the microphone yeah. off on my cell phone. And I'm like, hi, baby. How are you? I love you so much. How was your sleeping? Please come in. Did you eat your protein today? Just one second. So as I was discussing the health clinic, and that's life as a working mother. Yeah. So in that moment, was I being the best fundraiser for this incredible train clinic project that we launched I don't know. 
I, I just said, look, I'm also on the school run. I'm also a working mother. Please, can we set up a meeting so that I can go into this with more depth? And But I did have that ROI number fast in my head. <laughs> 100,000 people, $1.4 million. (laughs) I busted that one out. And then was I being a great mom to my daughter? You know, if you were recording the things she was saying to me at the time, you're always ignoring me. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. Oh, my gosh. You know, I I started uh, a game. So so mine's still young enough. Uh, She's five. So we have a game. When mommy has a work call, how long can you stay quiet? So I give, I, I give, I give her, I give her the cue. Mommy's going on a work call. I say it three times. What do we do when mommy's on a work call? Then she goes, and then literally it's how long can she stay quiet on the call? And I'm literally breezing my way through this call because I know I've only got a short amount. Like literally my time is limited. And then if I finish before she's at her max, she'll go, oh, my God, mommy, I didn't even make a noise. <laughs> <laughs> You're brilliant to make it a game. I'm oh my telling God. you, girl. I had no other choice. <laughs> I had no other choice because it will be, mommy, mommy. And then she'll come and whisper and then stand close to, stand close to you like the other person can't hear. Um, but I, I'm thankful for COVID. Um, because COVID normalized working mothers and working parents. Yes. Um, yes. Without COVID, goodness knows how 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 life would have been as we transitioned motherhood and still building careers. This is so true. Ikenna, thank, this is so true. Thank you so much um, for giving of your time and sharing so openly. Um, where do people find you? Oh, Zizé, I have an Instagram account, so Edinish Carrera, I think it is. And I have a LinkedIn account, I think is the best way to find me, which is Ikena Carrera um, on LinkedIn. And anyone that would like to participate, donate time, services, money, medical equipment to our clinic on a train that's crossing Angola, please do reach out. And can I just say something? I, I think that one of the great fortunes in my life and is the woman I've met. And I mean that with all of my heart. Like my mother has been an incredible example of fortitude, dignity. I mean, you know. Your mom is incredible. Your mom is incredible. But also my friends, and you are one of them. It is such a joy to watch you thrive and to watch you have this authentic, incredible, powerful voice. And I'm so grateful for our friendship. I'm so grateful to know you. And I'm so humbled and honored for our conversation today. I, you know, thank you from the bottom of my heart. You're going to make me cry, friend. You know, and, and you you know, once I called you, I was like, I'm desperately looking to make a podcast for South African Regional (laughs) Office of the UN. Please help me. And you you put me in touch with a a young man who said to me the following words. I love working with Zizi. Working with her really makes me feel like I'm contributing to a better world. Oh my God. You guys are going to make me cry. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Thank you so much. And thank you, Fran. Fran is incredible. He is godsend and keeps this show on every week. Um, And 
your support listeners for listening my friends for giving their time all my other guests honestly this was just born out of an idea that i felt that we needed to have one a curated vault of our different voices um but also to a place for us as peers and the next generation to have our stories to help them build and grow and hopefully we can achieve our potential as a people um and continue to bring forth beauty into the world in whatever shape or form it comes in so oh my god thank you so much this is probably been like the most um enriching podcast i say that every every episode but for me, <laughs> for, me for me as well um look forward to seeing you guys next week um until next time like follow comment on social media and we'll be back thank you to over 20,000 of you that have tuned in and have continued to tune in Because of you, our show is now distributed on Vodacom Africa's platform, My Muse. Your support helps make this show bigger and better. If you're a fan of the show, we would love to know. Please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and join our community with weekly newsletters curated just for you. Check out our free resources on entrepreneurship, productivity, finance, and leadership at thirdcultureafricans.com. You can now catch special episodes with video on YouTube at Third Culture Africans. Let's connect on Instagram and Facebook at Third Culture Africans. Let's do this.